Amen. Please be seated. Well, we're going to read uh, of the place that this law of God has in our passage today. Our scripture text is out of the book of Galatians, and I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. We'll read today from verses 19 through 24, Galatians chapter 3, verses uh, 19 through uh, 24. Let's now hear uh, God's uh, holy word. Uh, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. This ends this reading uh, in God's uh, word. Let's look again to the Lord in uh, prayer. Lord, our uh, God and Heavenly Father, uh, we give you thanks for your holy word, and we thank you for your holy law, which was given to Moses, expressed through your commandments on Mount Sinai, a law which is a reflection of your holy character and a law which reveals our sin. Lord, your law is good, and it is perfect, and it is holy. We pray, O Lord, that we would be those who look into this perfect law of liberty. Even today, O Lord, that we would see your law aright. Lord, that it would do a work in our hearts, in the very depths of our hearts. And most of all, we pray, O Lord, that it would point us to our perfect Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Uh, Amen. Uh, Now, here in Galatians uh, chapter 3, one of Paul's purposes is to show that the gospel that he preached was consistent with that which was proclaimed in the Old Testament. Uh, Last week, in particular, we saw how uh, 
the gospel itself is the fulfillment of promises that were given uh, to Abraham. Uh, that God appeared to Abraham. Uh, that he, not at Abraham's instigation or even with Abraham's consent, but that the Lord unilaterally made glorious and gracious promises to our father, Abraham. And it is in Jesus Christ, ultimately, the seed of Abraham that all of these promises now uh, flow uh, to us, his people. Indeed, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a glorious fulfillment of that covenant made with Abraham. However, at this point, you could almost hear these first century Judaizers in Galatia, at this point, eagerly raising their hand and saying, wait a second, Paul, Uh, stop for a moment, yet let us bring up an objection. And here, they would say this question, yes, you speak a lot of Abraham, Paul, but what about Moses? Moses, after all, is an extraordinarily important person in the Old uh, Testament, the Giving of the law at Sinai is one of the greatest events that have ever occurred. We just read of it this morning out of Exodus of uh, that time when there were thunders and lightnings and uh, the Lord himself by his finger wrote those commandments on those tablets of stone and then gave a whole variety of other laws which were to govern the life of God's people in the Old Testament. Was not this law given to Moses extraordinarily important? And so, Paul, is it possibly the case that you have been pleased to go straight from Abraham to Jesus and skipped everything that's in between? What about Moses? What are we to do with the law that is given through Moses? Moses, why did the law, why did the Lord give the law? Paul, does your theology squeeze out any place for the law? And that's what Paul is so pleased to address in this section. Yes, the gospel is the fulfillment of those promises given to Abraham, but then the law of God which comes does not contradict those previous promises, but rather has a place, an essential part to play in the purpose of God. But the law's purpose was not to bestow salvation, but rather to convince people of their need of salvation. The law itself does not provide life, but rather demonstrates sinners' need of grace. That's going to be Paul's point. And let's open up this now. Uh, In this section, as Paul so helpfully addresses for not only within the, uh, the grand uh, scope of Old Testament history, the place that the giving of the law has in God's purposes, but also points to the place that the law of God has in our lives uh, even today. We're going to see four different points. And following these four points, we're going to make uh, three different points of application. But the four points are these. First of all, we're going to see that the law was added to the promise. The law was added to the promise. Secondly, that the law exposes sin. Uh, Thirdly, that the law imprisons us. And fourth, that the law directs us to Christ. 
The law was added to the promise. The law exposes sin. The law imprisons us. And then lastly, that the law directs us uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the first thing we see here is Paul explains the place that the law has. He says that the law was added to uh, the promise. We see that in verse uh, 19. Why then the law? And immediately these words, it was added. Notice he doesn't say, well, it replaced the previous covenant. And indeed, earlier in verses 17 and 18, he made this very point. There he says, this is what I mean, that the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, namely the covenant with Abraham, so as to make the promise void. If the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. And so the point that he's making is, is that those covenant promises made to Abraham continue to stand. They have not been annulled. They have not been voided. They have not been changed by the giving of the law. But rather, when the law came through Moses, it was a law that was added to the promise. Okay? And so in that sense, he goes on in verse 21 to ask the question, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And his answer is, certainly not. That again, what we have here is not the law making null and void the promises, the law presenting another way of salvation other than by the promises, but rather the law that is given in a way that is consistent with the promises that have already uh, been, uh, been given. And so the law itself is a law that was added, not replacing those gracious promises that were given uh, to Abraham. And this, I think, helps us get at what is being said in verses uh, the, uh, the last part of verse 19 and then in verse 20. There he says that this law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, what he's referring to here is simply the way that the law came uh, to the people. It was put in place by an intermediary, of course, that was Moses. All right, the law came uh, through Moses. We speak of it even as the Mosaic law. And so Leviticus chapter uh, 26 in verse 46 makes this exact point. There it says these words, that these are the statutes and rules and laws that the Lord made between himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. But nonetheless, even though this law was given through Moses, uh, certainly if you were to read Exodus uh, chapter uh, 33, even Moses himself did not have, as it were, completely direct interaction with God. Remember, Moses himself was hidden in the cleft of the rock and only beheld, as it were, Moses' back. And in fact, el- or only beheld the Lord's back. Okay, uh, And in fact, elsewhere 
it seems to indicate, now we don't have this in the book of Exodus itself, but rather elsewhere in Scripture, that the angels themselves had a special role in giving uh, the law. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 2, it says these words. It says that the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. So the, the angels themselves had a large part in giving uh, the law. Stephen makes this point in Acts chapter 7 and verse 53 when he is uh, suffering that first martyrdom. Stephen speaks of the Israelites who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And then in Hebrews 2 and verse 2, uh, the same point is made there of the role that angels had. Hebrews 2 and verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if, if we neglect such a great salvation? And so here we have a number of, of places that testify of the role that the angels had in giving the law through, uh, through Moses. Now the Judaizers and others in Galatia would have certainly viewed this as a good thing. Look how majestic the law is. The Lord attends the giving of the law with many angels and even with Moses, this great prophet. But it seems that Paul's point is just the opposite here. He says, yes, it was attended by angels. It was through Moses. But notice how different that is from the covenant that was given with Abraham, where it was the Lord himself who directly spoke the promises given to Abraham. That there's a sense in which the law of God, uh, containing two parties, the Lord and the people of Israel, and involving obligations from them, uh, from the people, involved uh, th these intermediaries. One writer puts it this way, that the promise came to Abraham firsthand from God, but the law comes to the people third hand. God, the angels, Moses the mediator, and then the people. And so that seems to be what is gotten at in verse 20, which is a difficult verse. An intermediary implies more than one. And here he seems to be talking again about the law and how the law came. But God himself is, is one. And so the point here is that the law itself is not a kind of superior way of approaching God. That the law in itself was not uh, another way at all, but there's a certain primacy given to the promise itself, which was directly given from God uh, to Abraham. And so the law itself, while, while certainly expressing uh, dignity and the glory of God, uh, was that which was simply added to the promise but now let's move on secondly about the law. Secondly, we're going to see that the law exposes sin. The law exposes sin. We have this in verse 19. 
Why then the law? It was added, yes, but why? Well, because of transgressions. That's why. Immediately you want to ask, well, what does this mean? Why was the law added because of transgressions? I think the best commentary on this is found in the book of Romans itself. You look with me at Paul's epistle to the Romans, uh, several times it explains this relationship. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. There it says, For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That the law makes us to know our sin. Or Romans chapter 4 and verse 15. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is, what is a transgression but the breaking of a law? So with the coming of the law brings with it a knowledge of sin. Or Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. The same idea, Romans 7 and verse 7 says there, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So what the law does is it comes and it brings to light the sin that is in our hearts. It worked that way, certainly in the history of Israel. Okay, When uh, God gave the law to Israel on Mount Sinai, did that law come to them as a way of kind of applauding them for their inherent obedience? You've been such a good people, now let me give you my law to show what a good people you've been, and that's why I've, I've, uh, I've redeemed you. And of course, just the opposite, right? What did the people of Israel already shown themselves to be? Sinners, right? they, they, they're in the wilderness. What are they doing while well, in the wilderness? They're complaining against God. In the wilderness, Moses has to appoint 70 other elders because the disputes and the conflicts are so many that he can't keep track of them all himself. And then God gives the law on Mount Sinai and immediately, even while Moses is up on the mountain, what are the people doing? But they're committing idolatry, creating a golden calf, another god for them to worship. And so do you see, even in its original context, why was this law given to Moses? It was given to them as a sinful people. And when that law came, in those ten words, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself an idol, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, you should remember the Lord's Sabbath day to keep it holy. You should honor your father and your mother. You shall not kill, nor commit adultery, nor shall you steal, nor bear false witness, and you shall not covet in your heart. What did that law do? But it exposed and brought to light the deep sinfulness of these people whom uh, the Lord had redeemed. And indeed, the rest of the law that was revealed were a variety of Uh, judicial laws to govern the life of Israel and ceremonial laws which pointed to their need of forgiveness for all of the sins 
which they uh, committed. And so within the Old Testament itself, dear friends, why was the law added? Was it added as a way for them to gain salvation by their own works? No, the law was added because of transgression. The law shed light upon their sin. And friends, the law of God does the same thing in our lives uh, today. It reveals our sin. You know, the Reformers, I think very helpfully, biblically, said that there are three basic uses of the law. The first use of the law is what we're talking about right now, that the law shows us the depths of our sinfulness. The second use of the law is what we might call a more judicial or civil use of the law. That is, it orders society and provides punishment for wrongdoing. The third use of the law is the use that now, after coming to faith in Jesus Christ, it directs us in the way of thankful and holy living. But dear friends, amidst those three uses, that first use of the law, we might say, even is is primary And it's something that we never leave behind, but rather the law's purpose, friends, is to come to us and to show us the depths of our sin and of our misery. That is, when we examine our lives, we need to examine it in light of the law, and it exposes how wicked uh, we, uh, we really are. Why was why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. You know, I don't know. Uh, um, just by way of illustration, uh, you know, I'm I, I think I'm one of the most handsome guys out there. If the room is completely dark, right? But none of us, right? I don't think any of us love to have a light, you know, shining on our face when we're looking at ourselves in the mirror up close. What do you begin to see? You see all the, the wrinkles and all the defects, and you see uh, the way that your face isn't shaped quite, quite right, right? We prefer to look at it when the, the light is dim. Well, friends, that's kind of what the law does to, to our hearts. It shines light, and it shows us all of the ways in which we um, aren't expressing the holiness of the God who has made us. All of our failings. You know, when we compare our lives to the lives of other people, we kind of think, oh, I'm doing pretty well. Not that bad. You know, if we were to think of it in terms of those standardized tests that you take in school, you think, oh, I'm about in the 86th percentile compared to everybody else, right? I'm doing better than most. But friends, what the law of God does is it shows us our lives in light of God's perfect standard in light of His holiness, in light of what He has created us to be. And, and everywhere, that law shows us our own shortcomings and exposes our sin for what it is. And it shows us the way that our hearts aren't right and the ways that we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. And the filthiness of so many of our thoughts and the wickedness of our behaviors and the ways that we've rebelled Against Almighty God, it shines light on who, we, on who we are. It is like that magnifying glass or that spotlight that shows every defect of our hearts. That's the purpose of uh, the law of God. It exposes our sin. 
That's why the law was given to Israel. That's why we continue to need the law in our own lives because it shows us the reality of who we are. But now thirdly, if we see that the law exposes sin, thirdly, we see that the law imprisons us. The law imprisons us. Look with me at verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. And then these words, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the point is, is that there is no life, no righteousness that comes through the law because the law shows that we are sinners. And so whenever we see our lives in light of God's law, we, don't, we can't say, ultimately, well, I'm doing well enough on my own I have a kind of self-righteousness that will enable me to stand before the presence of God. Rather, the law leads us to a kind of point of despair. I have not kept it. I am not currently keeping it. I have no hope of keeping this law in the future, and there is no life at all that comes by it. This law tells me only of God's holiness of God's demand upon my life and how far I daily fall short. Well, in making this point, Paul then goes on uh, in verses 22 through 24 to use two different figures or illustrations of what the law does. And the first figure is that the law is a kind of jailer who holds us captive. Look with me at verses 22 and 23. The Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Verse 23, Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be uh, revealed. And here the image is that of a jailer which hems us in or kind of coops us up I can imagine if you spent time in in a jail that the security guards and the bars and those barbed wire fences would be a continual reminder of the freedom that you don't have. So it is like the law of God stands before our faces and tells us continually that you have no self-righteousness, that you are not able to stand before God on the basis of your own works. So the law comes and tells us what we are not. Then, but then he goes on in verse 24 to use a second figure. And here the figure is that of a guardian who disciplines us. A guardian who disciplines us. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Uh, the, the word is that of a, of a, a, a pedagogue uh, and in the old, uh, in the ancient world, it was it was a word which referred to a kind of slave who looked after a child. So a wealthy family would have a slave, and that slave was not so much the tutor of the child, but rather the slave uh, would would take responsibility for the child to make sure that the child's uh, life was in order, that he was acting responsibly. It would take him to school. 
and as it were, pick them up after school. And even the ancient images that we have of these uh, pedagogues uh, were always contained a rod in their hands. <laughs> they were discipliners. And the idea was is that the child needed to be hemmed in, disciplined continually uh, for their wrongdoing. And it was that, uh, the idea that the law here is then is a disciplinarian. It rebukes us and it punishes us for our uh, misdeeds. So Martin Luther says, commenting on this, he says, therefore the principal purpose of the law and theology is to make men not better but worse. That is, it shows them their sin so that by the recognition of sin they may be humbled, frightened, and worn down. Friends, that's what we see when we look into the law of God. It imprisons us. It does not lead uh, to life by our own works. And this leads us then, fourthly, what is the purpose of the law in God's, uh, in God's plan? The law is not only added to the promise, it exposes sin, it imprisons us, but now, fourthly, the law directs us to Jesus Christ. And this ultimately is the purpose of the law in God's plan. And we see this time and again in this passage, verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Or verse 22. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Verse 23, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Or verse 24, the law was our guardian until when? Until Christ came in order that we might be justified uh, by faith. And so again, if we think in terms of redemptive history, why was that law given in the days of Moses it was so that the people of God might be now by centuries of training, as it were, learning to look for their salvation not in themselves or in their own works, but in the Messiah whom God would send in fulfillment of all of His promises. That was why. And so throughout the Old Covenant, the prophets uh, uh, told the people of their sin, of their sin that was because of their Failure to keep the law of God, but those same prophets pointed forward uh, to the days of God's great salvation through, uh, through Jesus Christ. Friends, the law of God has the same function in our lives today. That when we look into God's perfect law, it tells us of God's holiness, of our own sin, of our own inability to earn salvation, but then it directs our eyes squarely upon the only one in whom salvation is to be found. So in that sense, the law has such a good purpose in God's plan because it forces us to take our eyes off ourselves and to place them upon Jesus. Jesus, who is the perfect law keeper. Jesus, who is the Son of God sent for our salvation. Jesus, the one who bears our sins on Calvary's cross 
and suffers the curse that we deserve in our place. Jesus, the one who rises triumphant over the death that our sins deserve. The Jesus who brings us into new life and who now gives us of His Holy Spirit so that we in our own experience might, uh, might know cleansing from sin and forgiveness and might have the power then by His Spirit to walk in obedience before Him. You see, what the law does is it rids us of every attempt to try to find righteousness in ourselves and causes us to cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the Lord's good purpose. That's why it speaks here of of even of of this, uh, in verse 23, for example, of he speaks of Christ's coming as the coming of faith. It doesn't mean that people in the Old Testament didn't believe. There were true saints, true believers in the Old Testament who believed in the coming Christ. But the point is that now Christ, who is the object of our faith, He now has come. And so we set our eyes squarely upon Him and flee to Him for salvation. So the law cannot justify, but it drives us to faith in Jesus Christ, which does bring justification to us. Earlier I quoted Luther and I said that the primary purpose of the law and theology is to make men not better but worse. It shows them their sin so that by recognition of sin they may be humbled, frightened, and worn down. But I left the quote off there and actually Luther goes on to say, and so may long for grace and for the blessed offspring, referring to Christ. Well, dear friends, that's the purpose ultimately of the law of God, that we would look to the Lord Jesus. So let me just close today with three words of application. Three words of application. And the first word is this. It is that all works-based religion is unable to deal with your true condition. All works-based religion is unable to deal with your true condition. You know, this world has lots of different religions in it. There are some who practice Islam, and others who practice Judaism, not believing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. Others practice Buddhism. And friends, in the West today, secularism has become its own kind of, of religion. But do you realize that all these others of the world's religions are ultimately based off of human works? It's about my obedience. It's about my keeping of the law. It's about my becoming in touch with my inner light. It's about It's about me making the world a better place. Isn't that ultimately what secularism is about? Or can't we just each be comfortable in our own identity? Can't we each just kind of make the world a a, a better place? And what I want to say is that each one of these forms of religion, which are all works-based ultimately, cannot truly reckon with the condition that we're in, which is the condition of being sinners. You you know, if you think of it this way, 
that if we really examine our lives, we realize that uh, that we don't even live up to our uh, that we don't even live up to our own standards of what people should be. Right? We often expect out of others things which we don't live up to ourselves. We expect others to be nice and to be kind and to be gentle, and then we begin to look at our own lives and we say, "I'm not that." And friends, if we can't even live up to our own standards, how can we live up to the standards of the God who created us? Now, we could try to live in this little fantasy land and pretend, yeah, I'm really doing okay. The minute we begin to examine our own lives, we realize that I'm not. I have a deeply dreadful heart condition. It's called sin. And no matter what I've tried to do to get rid of it, I can't deal with it. And then I begin to look at the world around us and I see everybody else has that same problem. In fact, the world in which I live in is a world that is marked by sin and by conflict and by greediness and by uh, 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 sexual misconduct and by people taking advantage of one another and living for themselves. Everywhere I look, it's the the condition of the world in which we're in. And, And no matter how much... Uh, people are told, well, can't we just make the world a better place if we work together? Can't we just, can't we just live up to our own potential? People don't. <laughs> they don't. So what do we need, friends? We need a religion of grace. We need a religion of forgiveness. We need a religion of what the Lord does that we were unable to do. What is that religion, friends? It's a religion revealed for us in the Bible through Jesus Christ. All religions, friend, are not the same. People will try to say that thing. One religion is as good as another. They're not the same. Christianity alone proclaims this Savior given by the grace of God who does everything that is necessary for the forgiveness of my sin, and it alone can meet the real needs of the human condition. All works-based religion is unable to deal with our true condition. Second application is this. It is that you need continually to be confronted with God's law and come to a deep humility over your sin. You need continually to be confronted with God's law and come to a deep humility over your sin. Why did God give the law through Moses? It was to humble the people over their sin. And what the Israelites of old needed is what you need today as well. We need continually to be reminded of our own sin and of our own transgression and to despair of finding any righteousness ultimately in ourselves. And so, friends, this is why we need to read the Bible and to examine our lives in light of the Bible. It's because the Bible tells us of our sin. This is why daily in prayer you need to confess your sin to the Lord and to repent of it and to seek His mercy. That's part of daily prayer. This is why we need to be in a church which speaks to us of sin and of wrath. I mean, sometimes you hear people say, well, I just want to be in a church that makes me feel positive, makes me feel better about myself. You know, when I leave, I'm, I'm feeling better about myself. Well, 
That's not biblical religion. (laughs) The Bible says, no, no, we need to be told of God and of His holiness and of His wrath and of the reality of sin so that we will feel better not in of ourselves but in Jesus Christ so that we'd look to Him, right? So it's so important that we place ourselves under the preaching of the Word of God and we examine our hearts and our lives in light of what the law of God says. We need continually to be confronted with God's law. And and, and we need God's law not, not just so that we will you know, feel terrible about ourselves or something. You know, the, the Bible reminds us that actually we are God's beautiful creation. We're the, His handiwork. We've been made in His image. We've been made for something glorious, far more glorious than whatever any secularist will tell us about humanity. God's made us for Himself to know Him. We've been made for a, a glorious high purpose. The Bible doesn't just come to us and say, well, you're worthless. You're meaningless. You you don't count for anything. Like some abusive spouse coming to you and and hammering you day after day. That's not what the Bible does. The Bible says you were created for so much more. Now look at your sin. And then look at Jesus Christ who was able to bring you to that spot for to bring you to that place for which you were created. That's what the Bible tells us. But we need to know our sin in light of the holiness of God, and we need to be humbled over our sins so that we'll look to Jesus. And this brings us to our third point of application, friends. And the third point of application is this. It is that only when we see Christ as the answer to our sin will we be filled with true gratitude to Him. Only when we see Christ as the answer to our sin will we be filled with true gratitude to Him. One thing that will inspire true devotion to Jesus Christ, the kind of love for Christ that will lead me to even want to lay down my life for Him, to give my all for Him, when I see Jesus Christ as the one who did what I was unable to do for myself. He rescued me from the pit. His is the righteousness that I need. He alone is my Savior. And it's only when we see Jesus Christ as the one who saves a lost and rebellious sinner like me. It's only when Christ becomes the one who rescued me when I was unable to rescue myself. When Christ becomes the one who is my righteousness, when I myself, in myself, am condemned. It's only when we see that, what the work of Jesus in light of my own sin, that our love for Jesus will overflow. If Jesus is merely a good example for us, if he's only something we're adding on to our life of righteousness, then we're not going to really love Christ. What what has he done for us? But when we see him as the Savior that we need, oh, that's when we love. That's what inspires missionaries to, to go to the ends of the earth to tell this gospel. That's what inspires martyrs to give their life for the cause of Jesus. It's what inspires ordinary men and women, as it were, to... To, to, 
to have their lives radically turned about, to be changed in every aspect of their lives because of Jesus Christ. It's when we see Christ as the one who did what I could not do for myself. As the promised one who is all my salvation. Well, friends, might we see Christ in that way? Might the law expose our sin? Imprison us, as it were, so that we would look to Jesus Christ alone in whom God's promises are fulfilled. Let's pray together. Lord, we do pray that we would be humbled, so humbled, over our own sin. For, Lord, it is this truth that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief that we rejoice in today. Oh, Lord, our God, we do pray that we would be those who examine our lives frequently in light of your word, who allow your word to expose the sin that lies even in the deepest, darkest corners of our hearts. We pray, Lord, that we would deeply grieve over our own sin, that we would hate it, that we would despair of all self-righteousness, that we might cleave daily unto this great and glorious Savior in whom life is to be found. O Lord, our God, do this, we pray, in our lives we pray.